Welcome to episode two of the Cleeps podcast. In the last episode, we talked with Dave Parry, the Cleeps DT advisor. We were discussing the use of model risk assessments in technology. Today, we will be talking with Ralph Witcher, who is a Cleeps physics advisor and radiation protection advisor, or RPA. And we will be discussing the use of radioactive sources in schools. Ralph, can you talk to us about what an RPA actually is, please? Good morning, Samir. Yes, uh, an RPA is a radiation protection advisor. It's a legal requirement for employers who work with radioactive sources above a certain level. So you have to consult and then, if necessary, appoint a radiation protection advisor who gives advice on specific matters to do with safety using radioactive sources. Okay, thanks. And you say um, employers that use radioactive sources above a certain level. Would this include the types of sources that are used in schools? It does mostly, yes. The, the levels are surprisingly low. It's about 10 kilobecquerel for typical alpha emitters. And for school sources to work well, you need much more than that. So to get your little spark counters working or to show ionisation currents, you need something you know, of the order of 100-200 kilobecquerel. So the little school sources are well within the limits that require a consultation and appointment of a radiation protection advisor. So would this include cup sources? Schools with cup sources therefore need an RPA? They do, yes. All cup sources. Actually, that's not quite right. There were some made by Panax that were quite small activity. But the standard cup sources from Philip Harris, Griffin and other suppliers, yes, you need an RPA for those. Okay, no, that's, that's great. And can you just tell us about a little bit about the journey to, to becoming an RPA? Sounds quite interesting. Yes, I mean, I became an RPA almost by accident. First time this came around was about 1985, ionising radiation regulations, and they first required appointments of an RPA by employers. But there's nothing about the qualifications and experience to the RPA. So consequently, many education employers, local authorities, appointed science advisors to be the RPA. But that changed in 1999 when a new set of regulations came out and they required the radiation protection advisor to have certain qualifications that had to be recognised by the health and safety executive. Now, it was not easy to get those qualifications. So unfortunately, most science advisors can no longer act as radiation protection advisors after about 2005. That was a cut-off time. Okay. So since 2005, uh, you had to be qualified as recognised by the HSE. And, and that's where I was. I was uh, in an advisory service in a local authority. But I made the decision to study for the qualifications through Strathclyde University to become a qualified RPA in 2005. And... Can you describe how CLEEPS can help schools and colleges to appoint an RPA? The CLEEPS system is designed to be inexpensive and yet fulfil the requirements of the regulations and to give schools support. And the idea was, when it was first set up, that local authorities had a duty anyway to visit their schools. And we could simply ask the health and safety advisors or the science advisors on their visits to schools to check on the radioactive sources and that they were managed properly. 
So the RPA didn't need to visit schools. And that made it very inexpensive. Now, with the academisation in England and other changes, that's become a little less easy. But what Cleeps does is it appoints an RPA on behalf of the employer and it asks the employer to appoint a radiation protection officer, an RPO, someone who visits the schools. And that way we can still keep the cost quite low. There has been a change more recently. Cleeps has become what is called an RPA body. Now, what this does is it cuts down bureaucracy. What it means is that when an employer wants an RPA, the employer appoints Cleeps as an RPA body to be their RPA. And then we, as Cleeps, assign an RPA to you. It sounds complicated. It's a lot simpler than it sounds. What it means is, as RPAs come and go, retiring or a change of career, it doesn't make any changes to the employer because Cleeps is, as an RPA body, the appointed RPA. So schools would appoint Cleeps as their RPA, but behind the scenes, there would be a named RPA which has been assigned to the school. That's exactly right. And that's a better way of saying it. And we we, uh, work together quite a lot on topics to do with radioactivity. Why do you think practical radioactivity is so important in schools and colleges? Oh, it's so exciting. It makes science real. It really Uh, does. Yeah, it it brings it alive. And you see one of the few examples in science where you see an event coming from a single atom. It also teaches students to have the right approach to risk. Yeah, if if yeah. you do it all by simulation, the message you perhaps don't intend to give, but the message they may pick up is, it's too dangerous. That's, and so that's people, right. Yeah, they get um, sort of exaggerated fear of low-level radioactivity. Yeah. It's like, it's like all things that are hazardous. It's no different, I suppose, to handling concentrated sulfuric acid. If it's handled with the right techniques, with the right equipment, it's the risks are very low. Sure. And, and the benefits, the excitement of visually seeing the experiments, you know, using your Geiger counters, using your spark counters. I mean, I, as you know, I, I train teachers on RPS courses, and often I see their faces light up when you demonstrate all these experiments showing ionization currents, showing spark counters. Yeah. I'd be very sad if the school didn't do the practical work. No, I'd, I'd agree with that fully. And simulations do have their place. Uh, but, you know, they, they should be used alongside good practical work, not as a substitute to practical work. Yeah, absolutely. They enhance learning. They're not instead of practical work. I completely agree with that. Okay, so, Ralph, you are the person who is responsible for updating our radioactives guide, the the use of ionising radiations in schools and colleges, L93. And a recent update suggested, or actually uh, we now advise schools to dispose of homemade protactinium generators. Can I ask why this is the case? This is not a decision we made lightly. It came about after a lot of research. I know you were helping me with it. We know from the phone calls we're getting on the helpline, a significant number of these things fail every year. When they fail, they leak hydrochloric acid and and HCl fumes and cause no end of damage. 
sometimes can be extremely expensive to clear up multiple thousands of pounds to clear up in one particular case it was the tens of thousands of pounds to clear up yeah and what is what was happening is teachers were technicians were making these devices to save money the amount of money they saved was nothing compared with the costs of the cleaning up and disposal afterwards to try and overcome this problem we designed a protactinium generator that we thought would keep its integrity for many years what we found is after about four or five years they started to give poor results and even though we'd spent a lot of time investigating and getting a trying to get a good seal in the bottle there was still some loss of the solvents and we said no obviously these are failing and then add to that the cost of disposal you can't throw these down the sink typical disposal costs around about six to seven hundred pounds yeah. So when they start failing, schools were finding they didn't have the funds to dispose of them. So they tended to get left into the too difficult corner of the cupboard. <laughs> Teachers and technicians come and go, and these things started to fail and causing severe problems. Because if they leak into the fabric of the building, if they leak into concrete floors or walls, then you have to chisel out the contaminated material. And the cost of disposal of contaminated material is eye-watering. Really? So reluctantly, the the costs of disposal are so great and the risk of leakage is significant we said no homemade ones don't use them anymore dispose them as soon as you can yeah i I think i will say is that even purchased protect team generators i think the only company at the moment making them is philip harris they've got a recommended working life of eight years so after eight years you've got to factor in disposal sure which can cost um significantly more than the actual purchase cost oh yeah yeah we uh ralph and myself are, are big both fans of the uh cooknell electronics cp3 ic using camping gas mantles foliated camping mantles um ralph do you want to add anything to that it doesn't have a recommended work in life these things i've had my one my prototype for 10 years more and it still gives good results Sure, that everyone to dispose of it. I can just throw the gas metals into the bin and I can dispose of the CP3 IC as electrical waste. So, disposal yeah. costs are much, are much less. They're much less, and this, this, this isn't going to leak anywhere in the same uh, fashion as a protactinium generator will leak radioactive hydrochloric acid. Um, as Ralph says, disposal costs are, are virtually zero. It gives really good results. It's, it's a great bit, bit of kit. If uh, listeners would like to see this in action, if they searched our website for Radon Half-Life, you will see a video of this in use. And it is available to buy from Cooknell, that's C-O-O-K-N-E-L-L hyphen electronics.co.uk and that is if you go to products and then they got a um, section that says ramp noise and others and it's there the cp3 ic okay ralph can we talk about leak testing and record keeping why is this so important well firstly it's a legal requirement actually the law is a little bit vague on this it says you must do suitable tests at suitable intervals and it's only in the yeah this is for the leak, leak test that's for leak tests. You've got to, well, no, it doesn't say leak tests. It just says suitable tests at suitable intervals to, to detect leakage. 
Now, the approved code of practice from the HSE says you must do this at least every two years. Now, some people take this to mean every two years is fine. No, it's at least every two years, and more often if there's good reason. And there is good reason to do it more often for school sources, because most of them are well beyond their recommended working life. Now, the recommended working life is nominal. There's been no research in what is you know, the, the best recommended working life. But the recommended working life was about five to ten years. And many of the school sources are much older than that. Okay. And so Eclipse, we say, look, we can justify keeping these sources in use. They've got a very good track record, but we need to increase the frequency to once every year. So once every year, we need to do suitable tests. And the suitable tests comprise two parts. One is to actually physically wipe the surface and detect if there's any leakage of material. By leakage, we mean it's removable. Radioactive material has come away from the, the source. That should never happen because these are sealed sources. Okay. But the second and equally important test is the visual test. My experience is you detect problems visually way before you get any problems with leakage. Sure. L93, there's a whole section on how to do it. It is very straightforward and it should not be time consuming. If it's taking a lot of time, you're doing something wrong in my book. It takes me a few minutes to do the visual inspection and the leak test. As you know, in Cleeps, we have far more than the standard number of sources that schools have. We keep the legacy reasons. We keep sources so we can check how they progress over time. Yeah. But in the morning... Two technicians and me can do all our sources, the visual inspections and the leak tests with no problem. Okay. So a school with, let's say you, you are a school, you're, you're a sole RPS or technician who's had suitable training on how to do this from, from their RPS. Yeah. Uh, with three cup sources uh, perhaps a couple of other items, the, the smoke alarm and perhaps the uh, camping gas bottle from the uh, Half-Life experiment. Would you say all five of those sources could be done, visually checked in an hour? Easily. Easily. Yeah. Yes, an hour's plenty. That gives you setup time. Obviously, you need a little bit of peace and quiet to do this. Sure. Take your counts, record them. Assuming that everything goes well and there are no problems, you, you don't detect a leaking source. If there are yeah. no problems. If you find you've got a problem, you have concerns, then put that to one side, take that source out of service and come back to it at a later time and decide what to do about it. We recommend you ring us on the helpline for advice. Okay, and um, schools can, can you know, ring us uh, any time in, in school hours, Monday through to Friday for, for that advice. Um, I, as, as a physics advisor at Cleeps, I don't think I've ever had in the seven years I've been working there a confirmed leakage of a sealed cup source. Uh, as Ralph says, the, these things are, are very robust uh, but due to the fact that they are far older than their recommended working life we do advise schools to do an annual leak test and vision inspection and uh, can you just talk a little bit about record keeping as well what what sort of records should schools be keeping about these sources 
One of the problems we get at Cleeps is schools don't keep or lose their records and they don't know what the source is. And that becomes a nightmare when it comes to disposal. So firstly, you need to keep your records for leak testing. That's a legal requirement because should you be inspected by the health and safety executive, they will require evidence that you've done your leak testing at suitable intervals. Secondly, it enables you to check your sources over a period of time. You can look for any trend of a problem with the source, and that's useful. But the most important thing is, is evidence of what the source is when it comes to disposal. Now, if it's a standard cup source, we can pretty much identify what it is and its activity and give you advice on disposal. But as you know, Samir, how many calls do we get during the term where schools have got no records and yeah. it's very difficult to identify exactly what the source is. Yeah. And you can't dispose of a source unless you know what it is. No one will take it away from you. Yeah, that's And right. it can become very expensive to identify a source if you don't know what it is. So this is something we both bang on about a lot. Please make sure you keep accurate records of what your sources are and the maintenance of those sources. Could you talk to us uh, a little bit about the process then if a school does have an unknown source, they send pictures to us at Cleeps, nobody here knows what, what the source is, we would send it to the RPAs, Nobody, uh, none of the other RPAs would know what the source is. What would happen next? An RPA, or someone on, on behalf of an RPA who's, who's competent, will have to go in with instrumentation to identify what the radionuclide is. Now, if it is a significant gamma emitter, unfortunately most radionuclides are, then we have a piece of equipment called a gamma spectrometer, and from the peaks that we detect, we can deduce what the radionuclide is. And by taking measurements of the Geiger counter, we can pretty much make an estimate of the activity. But that means someone coming out to your school with this equipment to take these measurements. Mm. But sometimes... The radionuclides that emit almost no gamma, for example, chlorine 36, strontium 90, the, the amount of gamma from them is, is almost nothing. And then we got the problem of how do we t tell what it is? And if that were the case, then it'd have to be taken away, sent to something like a university laboratory where they'd have to do some beta spectrometry or some alpha spectrometry to deduce what it is. And you're talking large sums of money here. This yeah. is very expensive for someone to collect the unknown source characterize it report on it and then return it to the school for then disposal so my answer is don't be in that position please make sure you've got accurate records of what your sources are but unfortunately sometimes new staff come in they're doing a clear up they look in the back of a cupboard and they find something that they've got no idea what it is yeah that's it i think in most cases probably three quarters of cases in there we have something called the source spotters guide yes we have a big paper database of sources we've come across in the past. Yeah. And from the photographs you sent in to us, we can often figure out what it is. Yeah. But I, sometimes we can't. Sometimes we can't, but uh, we, we've had helpful folks who, who do the uh, gamma spectroscopy and uh, identify the sources. But as Ralph says, this is often a legacy problem whereby somebody bought in a weird source a long time ago, subsequently retired or moved on, left the source behind, and now 30, 40 years later, it's being found in the back of a cupboard. 
um, in schools and, and teachers and technicians these days won't go out and get any old source. They are they are aware of the rules and regulations. On the whole, uh, I don't know if that that's something you'd agree with, Ralph. Perhaps so. Yes. Um, okay, that's that's very useful to to discuss these and then share share these. Uh, we can now uh, move on to talking about some of the hardware developments. Um, you have developed the very popular Arduino GM counter. Can you talk a little bit uh, about that, please? Of course. It's, it's serendipity, wasn't it? I don't think we intended this to be something we were producing for schools. It was born out of the need to reduce the weight of material we're carting around on our RPS courses. So I wanted a small device for detecting the pulses from a GM tube and display them on a large screen using a data projector. And it went through several iterations, but we got so many requests on the courses for what was this equipment, could they make it, that we turned it into a guide in the end. GL118? That's right, yeah. So if the school feels they have enough experience in soldering and constructing electronic circuits, and many technicians and teachers have have that experience, then yes, it's relatively straightforward. There's a step-by-step guide on constructing the little counter unit, loading up the software, it's driven by an Arduino, Arduino Nano, and then connect it up to the GM tube and holder. So you've got a large display on the screen, which the pupils can see. Yeah, no, it's it's really useful. And I also run the RPS training and um, many of the audience are, are very interested in, in this bit of kit. Rather, you know, you can imagine a, a classroom situation where 30 students would have to view the counts on a little seven-segment display. It's, 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 it's not easy, but if you've got the, uh, the numbers blown up on, on your you know, 100-inch projector screen, it's a lot easier. So if you are interested in building one of these and you, know, you, you can solder reasonably well, do have a look at GL118 on our website for guidance on, on how you can make this. Also, if you have seen our 3D printed radiation suite, uh, the the bench, the various holders and accessories that would slide up and down the bench, that was spawned from Ralph's wooden design. Do you want to talk a little bit about your wooden uh, radioactive suite? Again, that was driven by the RPS courses that we run. I wanted the equipment to be easily assembled and easily manipulated so I could focus on the audience yeah. rather than focusing on not dropping my radioactive sources <laughs> or knocking my DM tube. Yeah. And being a keen DIY woodworker, I designed one in wood. The trouble is it wasn't easy to make because you needed woodworking machines. And that's not something that the science department is likely to have. But Samir, you took my idea from the wood and developed the excellent 3D printed version, which schools are likely to have. And you've produced the files so schools can download them. I really like the 3D GM tube holder. I think that's brilliant because the cost of a GM tube holder is, is, is a lot. But I think you could 3D print it for three or four pounds. Uh, yeah, if that... Yeah, uh, a lot of the work that we've been doing, as I've mentioned in in a previous episode of this podcast, we are all ex-teachers and technicians in schools and understand how budgets over years uh, uh, 
are, are kind of becoming tighter. So some of the work which we do revolves around saving science and DT departments money. So yeah, if you would like to make your own 3D printed suite and also Geiger Muller tube holder, because these things can cost over £100, mm. search our yeah. website for GL296. Ralph made it in wood. Um, <laughs> he, he then mentioned uh, how schools will not have in their DT departments the tools needed to, to kind of plane the wood. Is that the right expression? Yeah, there was one bit that needed spindle moulding and schools yeah. don't have spindle moulders. Yeah, so I, I kind of just took his blueprint and I drew uh, 3D models in, in SketchUp I've been using it ever since. So I was concerned um, that, you know, because these things were, were plastic, they wouldn't stand the uh, test of time. But I think they've been going on for over three years now with them and still absolutely... Yeah, no problem. yeah. I'm using the, the 3D printed ones and they're standing up absolutely fine too. Yeah, yeah. If you, yeah well, I think we'll have a, a future episode on 3D printing. When you slice your models... 3D printers don't make a solid object. The inside is often an, an infill, and you specify the percentage of infill. As long as the infill is uh, sufficiently high, your models will, will retain their strength. Yes, all my models are still working well. Brilliant. Okay, Ralph, uh, I think we'll wrap up there. That was really useful. Um, I think we'll also have a future episode on on the various sources found in schools, the good, the bad, and the ugly. How does that sound? <laughs> it could be a long podcast for me. <laughs> well, I yeah. think it'd be important to, for, for schools to, to realise some of the sources that they have are sources which they should dispose of, as per L93. Um, yes. Yeah, disposal of, of sources is very important. If, if you... Do have a chance to uh, look through your um, cupboards and spot anything that you're not sure what it is. Just take a picture and send it in. Okay, uh, Ralph, anything else to add to that? No, pleasure to talk to you again, Samir. Very nice to talk to you. Take care. Bye-bye. Thanks. Bye. Just to tie things together, if you uh, were interested in the Half-Life kit, which we were talking about, that's cooknol-electronics.co.uk and look for the CP3IC. Our Radioactive's advice is mainly in L93 on our website. That's L93 on science.cleeps.com. Dot .org.uk. Also search our website called GL118 for details on how to make the Arduino Geiger-Muller counter unit. We also sell PCBs at cost to our members. So if you would like a PCB, you can email science at cleeps.org.uk and request one and we will send you a link. Um, for the 3D printed radio, radioactive suite, search for GL296 on our website. That's GL296. If you are enjoying the podcast, please subscribe to us at cleeps.podbean.com. A reminder, we are also on Twitter at cleeps. That's at C-L-E-A-P-S-S. 
We hope this was very informative and listen to us again in the future.